Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. For today's readings, we're looking at the readings for Christmas Eve. That would be in year A, B, and C. They are the same. So Christmas Eve readings, technically, Christmas Eve is still part of the season of Advent, depending on when you might worship on Christmas Eve. The day changes when the sun goes down. So if you're going to a Christmas Eve candlelight service at, say, 8 o'clock at night, well, then you're you're safely able to say that you're no longer in Advent, but that you have entered into, you have begun the Christmas season. At our congregation, we have a Christmas Eve service beginning at 3 o'clock. That one, not quite the season of Christmas yet. Technically, it would still be the season of Advent as the sun The sun is still in the sky. Anyway, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 14 are the Old Testament text. As we read that text here in a moment, I'm going to continue it on with verses 15, 16, and 17 as well, just for the reading, so that you hear more of the prophecy. Then we go to the epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, and the gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now, we actually see all three of these texts in the three-year lectionary elsewhere. If you are coming in off of year A, I'm recording this in year B, but if you're coming off of year A, you've just read these. This is fourth Sunday in Advent. You get Isaiah 7, 10 to 17, and Matthew 1, 18 to 25. So you've read a slightly larger chunk of the Old Testament passage, and you've read the exact gospel reading. So I'm going to bring those episode clips forward into this show, a little tweaking and editing work, but then the new text that is not the same as that fourth Sunday in Advent of year A, the epistle, is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. Now, again, we get that elsewhere in the lectionary, 1 John 4, verses 1 through 11, with the optional inclusion of verses 12 to 21, is the epistle reading in year B, on the fifth Sunday of Easter. So it would be a few months further down the road. But never this this exact section. This this kind of bridges across the optional with the, the standard reading there. Now, before we dive right in, it's not too hard to figure out why these three readings are paired together. Isaiah 7 gives us the prophecy of a virgin birth and the child to be named Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew chapter 1 is where... Matthew, the apostle, tells us that that was referring to Jesus. Thanks be to God for the fulfillment of promise. And then 1 John 4 is going to focus again and again on God abiding in us. So again, Emmanuel, God with us. As he abides with us, he abides in us. So there's the strong connection for our text. As well as, even verse 9, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So let's start with that Isaiah 7 reading. Now, before I read the text, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, I guess, the context around it. Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of God's people, that of Judah. And we are in the 8th century BC, that is the 700s BC, and we have two foreign kings who have decided to ally themselves against Judah, and who are seeking to make war against King Ahaz. The one is a man named Rezin, R-E-Z-I-N, 
king of Syria, which is off to the north of Israel, and then the other is Israel, with her king Pekah, P-E-K-A-H. Rezin and Pekah together are seeking to defeat Ahaz, to the point where in verse 2 we read, When the house of David was told, house of David is a reference to the, the lineage of David, and thus Ahaz as a descendant of King David. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Ephraim there is a reference to the northern kingdom of Israel because that's where Ephraim, Ephraim is the place where the, the capital Samaria had been. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So Ahaz is terrified, and so are the people of Judah with him. And then we get to the point here where God sends the prophet Isaiah to go and to speak to King Ahaz. And that's the text that we then find ourselves with. So let me read verses 10 through 17. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of Yahweh your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put Yahweh to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now, for a little more context to this whole conversation, Ahaz is not a faithful king. He's not one of the kings in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah who's described as being faithful, doing right in the eyes of Yahweh, walking in the ways of the Lord. Quite the opposite. He's described pretty grotesquely in 2 Kings chapter 16. Verse 3, it says he even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel, he made, he sacrificed, and he made offerings in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So he's fraught with pagan worship. Personally, not just permitting it among the people, he does it himself, worships all kinds of false gods, burns his children, at least one of them, alive as a sacrifice to either Molech or Kamash, that's not identified, but those are the two typical gods associated with child sacrifice in the ancient Middle Eastern or Near Eastern world. And then when you skip down in that chapter, he goes off and allies himself. Instead of seeking God's help in the context of where we are here in Isaiah 7, he allies himself with Assyria, with Tiglath-Pileser, who is going to be the one just before Israel's conquered. So Tiglath-Pileser III will not be the one to destroy Israel, but that comes pretty quickly at hand. Anyway, Ahaz goes and meets him at Damascus, which is actually in Syria, Rezin's territory. 
And there he sees the fantastic altar that they have to their false god, and he makes a copy of it. He has the priest, Uriah the priest, back in Jerusalem, make a copy, building this altar to a pagan god, and he puts it in the temple. He takes the altar of Yahweh and pushes it off to the side for this new god, this better god in his mind. So this is the man we're dealing with as we look to this text today. And so when we see God offering to ask for any sign, we'll come back to that in a moment, but Ahaz responds, I will not ask, I will not put Yahweh to the test. He's full of himself. He doesn't believe Yahweh exists. At least it would appear he doesn't believe Yahweh exists. If he does, he doesn't care. If he believes in Yahweh at all, he sees Yahweh as a weak and lesser God, inferior, who is pretty much irrelevant. Ahaz's rejection of this offer is, is a display of his faith in other gods. So God offered him a blank check. Let's just phrase it that way. It's a familiar phrase, at least to some generations still. I guess our little children today don't know the phrase because we don't write checks much anymore, at least not as a culture. He offers him whatever he wants. I can only recall one other instance that's quite like this, and that's 1 Kings 3, where God offers King Solomon anything he wants, and Solomon famously asks for wisdom so that he can rule and govern God's people well. And the Lord gives him that gift, but not only that, also others. He gives him great wealth. Ahaz could have asked for anything. Deep is Sheol, that's a reference to the ground beneath our feet, the idea of death being buried. So deep is the ground below us, or high is the heavens. And anything in between, ask for whatever he wants. Ask for a sign. A sign that he can trust God. Now here's one. How about the defeat of his enemies? Again, it's a blank check. He can ask for whatever he wants. Why not have Rezin or Pekka or both of them toppled? Why not ask for God's judgment to come against the wicked? Okay, maybe not phrase it that way because he's also the wicked. But he could have asked for his enemies to be defeated, and he doesn't. Because again, he does not believe Yahweh is God. He doesn't believe Yahweh can act. In order for Yahweh to be able to defeat Rezin of Syria, Yahweh would have to be stronger than Rezin's God whoever Rezin's God may have been. Now, as Christians, we know Yahweh is the only God, and so Rezin's God, a false idol, wouldn't have stood a chance. But Ahaz, again, doesn't believe that. So he refuses, he asks for nothing. Now, I always point this one out. It can be a really fun family conversation to see how, how would you have answered verse 11? How would you have answered God's offer? What sign would you ask for? We don't have that opportunity. We have not been given the the blank check to ask God for whatever we want. We are called, 
as Christians, as his children, to pray, indeed to ask him for the things that we need to care for us, to provide for us. But we don't have this ask and the Lord will give kind of a statement in the same way. But what would you ask for? It can be can be interesting to ponder. So having rejected all of this, Isaiah then responds to him, Hear then, O house of David. It points back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God made David the promise that one of his descendants would sit on the throne in Jerusalem forever. And the Lord is indeed going to keep that promise, even though it won't be with Ahaz. It'll continue. The generations will come and go, but ultimately this promise is fulfilled in our Savior Jesus Christ. So the house of David, represented by the kings of the people of God, has rejected God's promise. So the question becomes, when does the house of David repent? And this is actually going to be Joseph. It is Joseph who finally brings about that repentance for the house of David, as he is one of the heirs of David, and he trusts the promise. He listens to the angel's words, and he names the child Jesus, and he cares for him. He acts faithfully in doing whatever the Spirit instructs him to do, whatever the angels tell him to do. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? I don't know that we know all that much what that opening phrase means, that he wearies men. Now, it could simply be a reference to the idea that Ahaz has done something to stir up and agitate both Rezin and Pekah, that they're bringing this battle against him anyway. It could be more than that, but there's nothing here. So, you weary men that you weary my God also. So, keeping with the way we just phrased that, you've wearied, you've agitated Rezin and Pekah, and so now you've done so with God that you have rejected him. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign because you're not going to ask for one. God is still faithful. God is going to prove himself anyway in spite of you. Here's your sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is going to be what brings us again to our gospel being Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. It will quote from right here, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Who is this about? We obviously see it being about Jesus because Matthew in the gospel tells us it's about Jesus, the inspired, inerrant, holy word of God through the work of the Holy Spirit teaches us this. So yes, it's about Jesus. I'm going to say it's about more than that. What's wrong with only seeing this sign as being about Jesus? The sign is spoken. The sign is given directly to the wicked King Ahaz. If this sign were only Jesus, it really isn't much of a sign because Ahaz doesn't live to see it. 
Instead, the purpose, the value of the sign is in the, the verses that are going to follow here, verses 15 to 17. It's a reminder to King Ahaz. This is going to be a child in his home, in his house, that he will see day in and day out and will remind him of his own wickedness and that the Lord is yet faithful. Now, I don't mean to confuse uh, some of the listeners. Some of you are familiar with the idea of twofold prophecy. Some aren't. Essentially, the idea of twofold prophecy is that most prophecies in Scripture, perhaps not all of them, but most of them, have a twofold meaning. Let's just go back to Genesis 3.15, the first promise, the first prophecy in Scripture. God, in the midst of speaking to Adam and Eve, and then to the serpent, the devil, and then he'll go back to Eve and then to Adam to finish it off. But as he speaks to the devil, he's going to tell him that he's going to send a savior. Specifically, here's how God phrased it. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, historically, this is known as the Proto-Evangelium. Proto, first, Evangelium, evangelism, good news. The first good news in Scripture. Right after sin enters the picture, so does the gospel. God is going to defeat the devil by sending a Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ. So we know this to be about Jesus, but it's also true in a smaller sense, isn't it? Man and snake don't get along. How many of you like snakes? What would you do if you saw a snake slithering around in your house right now? We seek to crush them. They seek to bite us. It's a fairly commonly seen thing. And so this is an example of a twofold prophecy. It has that minor fulfillment, but it has a greater fulfillment that comes in and through Jesus Christ. So it is here in Isaiah 7. There is a minor fulfillment that happens in Ahaz's lifetime, happens right before his own eyes. It's a sign to him, a daily reminder to him, again, of his own rejection of God, but God's faithfulness to him and to his people. And then it is fulfilled later, greater, in and through Jesus Christ. So let's unpack some of this and why I can say what I'm, I'm sharing and suggesting to you. So, first, the word virgin. The Hebrew word here is not the typical, normal word used in the Old Testament for a virgin, uh, but is instead the Hebrew word alma, which can mean virgin. It can be translated maiden. It can also refer to a, a woman, a young woman, who is married but has not had a child yet. Not to say she's barren, she just hasn't had a child yet. So you think of a newlywed, for example. He will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So, the picture here again, there is going to be a woman in Ahaz's house who has not had a child yet, but will bear a son. Now, most likely, this will be Ahaz's own son then, but it could, I suppose, be a servant in his house, and so a servant's son. And they'll name this boy Emmanuel. 
And so here's this child running around the house with his name, a constant thorn in Ahaz's side, reminding him, pointing him to this conversation with Isaiah the prophet. Now, why can we be so certain? Again, continuing onward, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Twofold here in verse 15. First, he's going to eat things that babies don't eat. Curds and honey. That's nothing all that spectacular. Curds come from milk, and so this is the land flowing with milk and honey after all. But you don't give curds to a newborn. A newborn is nursing. And even today, honey is one of the few things we don't give to babies, as we know that there's something going on in the honey, I don't remember exactly, uh, but can make infants sick. And so you're supposed to wait until a child is at least a year old and so forth anyway. So we're, we're not working with a baby here. He's grown up a little bit. He knows how to refuse evil and choose good. But verse 16, before he knows these things, so while he's still that infant, the two kings you dread, their land will be deserted. Rezin of Syria, Pekah of Israel. Ahaz reigns over the southern kingdom of Judah from roughly 736 until 716 BC. Again, giving you the context, the time frame here. And it's in that time frame that Israel is destroyed by Assyria. 722 BC, either Shalmaneser V or Sargon II one of those two kings is going to come and sack Israel. Gone. Taking their people into exile. The land is deserted. Assyria will also defeat Syria. I know their names are very similar. And this child, before he can do these things, before he can eat curds and honey and know good and evil, these lands are gone. Now this is true of Jesus who comes 700 years later. These kings are gone, their land's deserted. Although they're not really deserted anymore at the time Jesus comes. But again, God is giving this sign to Ahaz. So there's importance to that, significance to that. And if this is only referencing Jesus, this sign doesn't do Ahaz much of any use. It isn't really a sign to Ahaz any longer. So, best to see as a twofold prophecy. It's got a small meaning in Ahaz's time. There's a lot of debate over who this kid would be if that's the case. Some have suggested Hezekiah doesn't seem to work. Hezekiah appears to have been born prior to the end of Pekah's reign, significantly prior, I should say. So, a different son. Did they literally name him Emmanuel? Hard to say. But we know it, again, from the gospel text that we'll read here shortly, we know it with certainty to be a reference to Jesus Christ. So there's the minor fulfillment and there's the greater fulfillment in Christ, as much Old Testament prophecy does do. At this point, we turn to our epistle text from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. It's going to be two different paragraphs here, so let's take verses 7 through 12 first. Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Beloved. We're going to see that word in this text a couple of times. We are loved. Agapetoi. Agapetoi. Agape. I know, I'm, I'm literally speaking Greek. I don't know if I pronounced those things correctly or not, but agape. This is the word I want to focus on with this text primarily, because without it, we lose this text. This text is a bunch of gibberish that we would say is actually incorrect if we don't understand what love is. The Greek language has four different words to describe love. There's agape, which refers to unconditional love. We'll come back to that. That's the love of this text. There is philos, a brotherly love, which is why Philadelphia, Adelphos's brother, Philos, love, so city of brotherly love, right? One of the American cities here, also an ancient Greek city. Storge is kind of a family love. So Philos is a love that maybe you describe it as you choose this love. I'm going to choose to love my friend today. You don't have to, though. Right, tomorrow you can just decide they're not friends anymore. Okay, that relationship's done. Storge is the family love. It's like the love you have for your uncle. You just love him because you do. It's not necessarily a strong love, though. Right? Your love for your wife or for your husband is not the same as your love for your second cousin twice removed, but they're family. And then there's Eros. Eros, where we get our words erotic and so forth from, is the romantic love that should be between only husband and wife. English just lumps all of that together and even adds some, right? I mean, the idea that you love your pizza doesn't actually fit any of those loves. It would be wrong to Eros love your pizza. It would also be wrong to family love your pizza. It would be wrong to friend love your pizza. It would be wrong to unconditionally love your pizza, right? If it's burned to a crisp, you're not going to love it. That's conditional. It's not the pizza's fault, but it's just a thing. It doesn't matter, right? So we've even added this extra layer of love, and I don't know, we could probably unpack a few more with how crazed our culture is at this time. But... This text, again, we lose it if we don't define this love. Whoever loves has been born of God. Oh, again, everybody in our culture loves. They love their food. 
their desserts. They love their hobbies. They love their entertainment. This is not love. At least, this is not the love, the same love, that John's referring to. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This love, this love is agape. Even from the very first word, beloved, agape toy. Agape is an unconditional love that no matter what you do, this love is not undone. God will love you no matter what. That does not mean God always approves of us. It does not mean God always likes the things that he sees us doing. It does not even mean that God won't still judge us. The one that on the day of judgment the Lord casts into hell is still one that the Lord has made, the one that the Lord loves, and one that the Lord had sent his son to die for. It's their rejection that sends them to hell. They chose life apart from him, but he unconditionally had loved them. Unconditional love. And this starts that way again. This beloved word we see a couple of times is a is agape at its root. It's an unconditional love. You are one unconditionally loved by God. And so we are called to love one another. And this is Jesus' new commandment, you might be familiar with that, right? The account of John chapter 13, as they're having the the Maundy Thursday meal together, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and Jesus gives them a new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Pause for a moment. That's not the new part. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's the new part. That our love for one another would be the same as the love God has for us. And again, that takes it to an agape love. It takes it to a different level than that love had ever been before. Man, apart from God, man does not love unconditionally. Right? In a sinful and broken world, we can imagine things that the people we love could do to us that would cause us to not love them anymore. We can imagine something our spouse could do that would make us divorce them. We can imagine something our children can do that would make us sever ties from them. I mean, these are dark things. Don't dwell on these conversations in your head. But we can picture it. We can picture the things that break up friendships Partly, largely, because a lot of us, all of us, have lived through these kinds of things. Apart from God, man does not know good. Apart from God, man does not know love. But the true love that comes from the Lord for us. That's what we see here. Let us love one another. Let us agape one another because love is from God. For those of you Greek scholars who think I just butchered it by turning agape into an English verb, I'm sorry. Um, Forgive me for that. Love is from God. We love because he first loved us. That's something John says. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The Lord has taught us how to love each other.
and it is without conditions. It's without strings attached. No matter what my wife does to me or against me or for me, right? It doesn't have to just be negative. No matter what happens, I will love her because she's my wife. God has given her to me. This is what marriage is. And so we, again, we learn this from the Lord. We haven't, if we haven't seen it, we wouldn't know it. But as those who have been born of God, that is those who have been baptized, those who have the Spirit dwelling in our hearts, we now know what unconditional love looks like. Because again, verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest, that is revealed, made known, to us, among us, that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world so that we might live through him. Us, sinners, rebellion. We were rebels. We were against God, enemies of God. And yet while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Beautiful section of Paul's writing in Romans. What a thing. This is John 3.16, by the way, same author, right? Just a different book in his gospel account. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we see it again here. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God sent Jesus into the world. Again, I'll make the case it's worth celebrating the incarnation on March 25th, but, you know, here we are. Uh, We celebrate Christmas, so let's celebrate. Let's celebrate the gift that is. That is Jesus, that is our Savior, who unconditionally loves us no matter what. I'm a sinner. I mess up. I've rebelled against God. I have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and I repent. I confess that sin. I receive that forgiveness with joy, and then I go out and I do the same dumb things again. And the Lord forgives me again, and again, and again. Thanks be to God. The Lord forgives you again and again and again. It is a gift, a gift that keeps on giving our Savior. So if you do do not love, you don't know God. When we phrase things this way, this becomes the harder statement. The one who refuses unconditional love is refusing God. This is the same picture with the Lord's Prayer when Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then those couple of verses right after that in Matthew 6, where he talks about forgiveness again, the picture, the picture is essentially God has has made you new. God has already reshaped and reformed you. He's put you in a new place. And the call is to remain there. So with forgiveness, the Lord has forgiven you everything. How can you say no to forgiving someone else? Who is also forgiven by God, by the way. How can you hold that sin against them when God doesn't anymore? To reject forgiveness is to reject living the the life God has placed you in. It is to walk away from his forgiveness. 
That's the picture of the parable of the unmerciful servant, by the way, who was forgiven an impossible debt load by the king, goes out, finds a man who owes him a significant amount, refuses forgiveness. And so the king throws him in prison. The servant he had forgiven. Prison there is hell. Right? This is the picture here as well, that God has loved us unconditionally. It is a call to a new life for us. And if we reject unconditionally loving others, we're saying we don't even want God's unconditional love. We're choosing to walk outside of it. That's the danger. That's what John is getting at here. In the same way, again, as Jesus teaches. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. That's the unconditional side again. Right? It doesn't... I'll go back to my own marriage. It would not matter if my wife loves me back or not. If, if it matters, if my love is contingent upon her loving me, then it's no longer unconditional, quite the opposite. It has become something other, something not good. That doesn't mean we'll always like each other. It doesn't mean we won't sin against each other. It doesn't mean there won't be difficult days or even seasons. But it means that no matter what, I will provide for her. No matter what, I will protect her. No matter what, right? Because she's my wife. I will do the things God calls me to do in serving her. And again, as a sinner, I fail and I, I ask the Lord to forgive. So this is God's love for us. Even though I sin, right? It's not that I have this perfect love for God. It's that he has a perfect love for me. I mess up, I fall short, I sin, but he loves me and he sent his son to be the propitiation for my sins. He loves you, he sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. A couple years ago I preached an entire Christmas Eve sermon on that word propitiation. Propitiation means to basically make another pleasing in someone else's sight. So God sends Jesus to be our propitiation. In other words, Jesus makes us good, pleasant in the sight of God the Father. That's the way to unpack that phrase. I mean, again, thanks be to God for this, right? God looks at you and he does not see your sin. The Lord looks at you and he sees the perfection of his son, Jesus. Because on the cross, Jesus not only took away our sins, he gave us his righteousness. That's imputed, the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's given to you in the waters of baptism, in the preached and proclaimed word. You have put on Christ, to use Paul's phrase. He sees you. He sees his son. Thanks be to God. And then we see verse 12. No one has ever seen God. This is a reference to God as he is, right? The, the Lord enthroned in his glory. And the Apostle John got a glimpse. He records it in Revelation for us. But one day, one day we will. We will see the Lord face to face in his paradise. But for now, if we love one another, God abides in us, 
and his love is perfected in us. So again, if we love one another, there's a picture that God has loved us first. He has placed us in this new way of being. We are new creatures, new creations, transformed in the renewal of our mind. Don't leave that. Remain in it. God, God loves you and calls you to love each other unconditionally. And he abides in us. His spirit is in us. There are New Testament verses about the Spirit dwelling in us. There are New Testament verses about Jesus dwelling in us. Which again connects us, both verse 9 and this idea that God abides in us to the Christmas theme, without a doubt. Our second paragraph is verses 13 to 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I think it's fair to say we've covered most of this idea already as we were looking at the first paragraph. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. If if we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we could not love. If we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we could not believe in God. So uh, certainly we can see that spirit dwelling in us because the spirit leads us to these things. The spirit leads us to repent. The spirit leads us to love each other. The spirit leads us to, to trust in God, to thank God for all things. We have seen and testified the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That's part of what we do when we gather on Christmas Eve for worship. We're testifying to the whole world that God sent his Son to save us. That's what Jesus came to do, to be our Savior. It's what his name means, Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh, saves. God abides in us. So we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. Yeah, thanks be to God for his son. Thanks be to God for his spirit who have given us such wondrous gifts that we know that we are children of God, that we know we are saved. God is love. Again, agape, unconditional love. That's who he is. He loves us unconditionally. And so if we abide in love, if we have that unconditional love of God, and we're in the Lord, and the Lord is in us. That now brings us to our gospel reading, which is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, a very familiar Christmas text to most Christians. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, it's interesting that of the gospel accounts, the four of them, only two of them cover anything from Jesus' early days. Well, his birth, conception, those those sorts of things. His early days of his earthly ministry time. For ultimately being God, Jesus technically has no early days. He has no beginning. He's always been. He's eternal. Jesus comes. Matthew records the birth for us. He also records the genealogy at the start of the book, which, by the way, we never actually read in church. It doesn't show up in the lectionary, so feel free to read it in advance of reading this text. Matthew records this, the birth, the visit of the Magi, the trip to Egypt. Mark covers nothing of these earlier days. Luke will also give us some genealogy. He's going to cover the Annunciation, the time the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would be with child, which is also believed by most traditionally to be the time of the Incarnation. Incarnate, carn, flesh, taking on flesh, Jesus coming into the world and taking on flesh, becoming one among us, so his conception. And then John's Gospel also, like Mark, doesn't cover this time, although it does say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's incarnation, conception, and so forth. But Matthew and Luke get much more specific. So here's what we have from Matthew. This is also our Christmas Eve gospel reading, by the way, so you might be getting this the next two times you're in church. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal in the Jewish society was much more than what we consider it today. So we hear betrothal, we think the word engagement. They are engaged to be married, but it's more than that. Today you break off an engagement, there's hurt feelings. Something caused that, but it's not viewed as being wrong to break an engagement. It was then. In fact, betrothal had a ceremony to it, where the man and woman are pledged to be united as husband and wife to one another. Typically, from my understanding of Jewish customs at this time, after that betrothal ceremony, there's usually a few months, at which point the marriage is consummated and husband and wife live together. They're already considered husband and wife, though, They're promised to each other, and this is why, in verse 19, he resolves to divorce her quietly. We'll talk about that word a little bit more in in that verse, but he's not just breaking the engagement. He would have to divorce her. So much stronger, close to marriage, just without the sex. Which is interesting then with the rest of the context here, right? Before they came together, 
Why say that if they don't later come together? Why say he knew her not until she had given birth to a son if he never knew her? These little time phrases in verse 18 and 25 both imply that Mary and Joseph are a regular married couple in that regard, that they have sex together, that they have other children together. Mark chapter 6 will record that Jesus has brothers by the names of James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and also sisters. There are some who take that to be that they are cousins, not brothers and sisters. There are others who suggest that Joseph has been married before, that he is a widower, and so he brought other children into this marriage with Mary. All of this is unnecessary. The Roman Catholic Church certainly believes that Mary never had sex. They believe she remained a, a virgin her entire life. They will even talk about it in the context of Jesus somehow coming out of her womb without damaging her virginity, without damaging her birth canal, causing no pain in birth. And as the Reformation happened, even though Lutherans rejected many of the weird ideas that the Catholic Church was already teaching at the time, they didn't reject the teaching that Mary remained a virgin. They sought to maintain that one. And I don't believe that there's a a full description anywhere of of why they retained that doctrine in particular. I just think that we see that they did, and they continued to teach in that, that manner that she and Joseph never had sex. It's just, again, it's not something that the scriptures actually say. Right? You won't find it in scripture anywhere. It seems to be more so a picture of what the Roman Catholic Church over the centuries started to think about sex, that sex itself was dirty and could not be done in a pure and wholesome way before the Lord. Now, this goes against what God designed sex for. He made it as a good gift for husband and wife. But this is part of why the Roman Catholic Church rejects their priests getting married. It's why monks were celibate. It was viewed as a lesser thing. And so, with the idea that Mary must remain holy in Roman Catholic theology... They had to preserve her also from sex, lest she be tainted by this sinful thing. Now, sex is not sinful when done the way God designed it to be done, which is within the confine of marriage between husband and wife. Sex is good. It is a gift. And it should be treated and talked about as such. I, I don't know for, sh- for sure, but I would suggest that that is where the Roman Catholic position ultimately comes from. They believe Mary was without sin. And they believe Mary remained without sin. The Immaculate Conception is not about Jesus, it's about Mary. They believe that Mary was born without sin, conceived without sin, so that when she then conceived Jesus, he could be conceived without sin. Now that one's kind of circular logic, because in order for Mary to give birth to Jesus without passing on sin, she had to have been born without sin passed to her. But in order for that to have happened, in the same way, 
her mother and her grandmother and her great-grandmother all the way back until Eve would have had the same thing. At some point or another, otherwise you'll lose it. Right? How does, why just do Mary? Why say that Mary had to be without sin so that her child could be without sin? It, it doesn't make sense. There's no need for it, but it's a teaching that, that is had. And so all these things end up coming together to the point where, again, it is taught and believed probably by the majority of Christians in the world today that Mary and Joseph never consummated this marriage and that Joseph was somehow called in then by this angel who's not identified, unlike Gabriel speaking to Mary in Luke's gospel, that this angel is calling Joseph to a life of celibacy. I don't see it. I don't think the scriptures bear that weight, and it's irrelevant, ultimately. It does not take away from Jesus if he had brothers and sisters. Not in the slightest. It doesn't take away from Mary being, well, a saint. Not in the slightest. We don't believe she was perfect. We believe that she was a sinner needing a savior just as much as we do. And her son saved her. Thanks be to God. So before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I love this phrase, with child. We should use it today. When a woman is pregnant, the common language we use is she's expecting. Expecting what? She's not expecting to be a mom, although that's what we say, right? I'm, oh, I'm expecting to be a, a dad. Oh, yeah, in a few more months, I'm going to be a grandpa. <laughs> How do you know that? Do you know your daughter and son-in-law are going to have sex at such and such time and conceive a child? There's already a child present. If a woman is pregnant, there is a child in her womb, a living being distinct from mom and dad. This is why, as Christians, we reject the idea of abortion. Because it's not just a clump of cells. It's a person that God has made, a gift of life that he has given. Let's talk that way. Let's adopt this language, to be with child. Now, there could be other ways to say it, too, but this is the best way I've seen so far. Tell your family you're with child. And rejoice. But she is not with child by Joseph, which would be the normal way of things. Rather, this, not Anna's conception of Mary. We don't even know Anna's name. That's the church tradition, though. Anna's conception of Mary is not the holy one, the different one, the unique one. This one is. There is no earthly father. It is the Holy Spirit who has planted the seed who has placed the Son of God, Jesus Christ, inside of Mary's womb. Now this could make an argument that it is the Father who passes on 
original sin. That Jesus is without original sin because there is no earthly father to do so. This would be the way the scriptures tend to blame Adam for the fall and the sin rather than Eve, even though Eve was the one who took the forbidden mango and ate it first. I just like to say random fruits, by the way. We have no idea what fruit she ate. But she ate it. And Adam takes the fall for responsibility because he was in charge. He was the head of the family. And so it is the head of the family who passes on sin. And we see that Romans would talk this way. Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Scriptures never specify that original sin is passed from father to child. So we can't say it with certainty, but a a phrasing like this A picture like this, to look at this text, would would certainly indicate that's a possibility. So her husband Joseph, being a a just man, the word just there is dikaios in Greek, which can be translated just or righteous. I would prefer to see English use righteous here, because if he were just, he would seek justice. He believes he has been sinned against. He believes he's been wronged. So he would seek justice against Mary for having harmed him, wronged him, harmed their life together. But he doesn't. So it doesn't seem just is the right word. But righteous, righteous as we know from, again, the book of Romans, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, faith. To be righteous is to have faith. Joseph has faith. He is a faithful man. And that's what we see, the little that we see of Joseph in Scripture. As the angel here tells him to wake from his sleep and take Mary as his wife, he does. As he tells him to name him Jesus, he does. As he tells him to take his family down to Egypt, he does. Joseph acts faithfully in what the Lord gives him to do. This is good. So, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The penalty for committing adultery for sex outside of marriage could well be death. So, certainly an Old Testament precedent for it. But instead of bringing her to the courts, Joseph is going to divorce her. That literally means send her away. Divorce doesn't end a marriage. It it sends the woman away, sends her back to her father's house, most likely in this case. He's going to do that without shaming her. She's going to have to raise this child. She's going to need help and support. How's that going to happen? Uh, Lots of question marks. But he doesn't want to be the one who makes it harder for her. He doesn't seek to harm her. This is good. Now, ultimately, we know that he's wrong, that Mary has not wronged him in any way, and an angel reveals that to him in the next verse. As he's thinking about considering these things, an angel appears to him in a dream, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Son of David, that's covered in the genealogy, but the promise that the Messiah would come from the house of David being carried through. Do not fear. So he was fearful 
of what shame might befall him. What would the community think? What would his family think? But the angel says, do not fear. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It would be hard to take in. But again, he's faithful, he does. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is from the Hebrew verb yasha, which means to save. Yeshua is then the, the Hebrew name that comes from that verb. When we translate Yeshua into English, we translate it as Joshua in the Old Testament. This is the Greek version of that old Hebrew name. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew uses that language ten times in the book. This is the first. So he likes to point the Old Testament being fulfilled. He quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14, that a virgin would conceive a son, name him Emmanuel, God with us. Again, John covers this in chapter 1 of his gospel very well, that he would dwell among us. And he does. This is fantastic. And again, as we talked about in the Isaiah reading, this does point to Jesus. We know it points to Jesus because Matthew tells us it points to Jesus. But I still remember a a day sitting in class at seminary where a professor told us, nobody at this time, so Matthew's day, no, I'm sorry, the, the, the day of Matthew 1, which is 6 BC, 4 BC, somewhere around then, Nobody at that time was expecting Isaiah 7 verse 14 to still be fulfilled. They all thought it was done. It's kind of interesting now as Christians, we only think of Isaiah 7 14 as referring to Jesus. But nobody thought it was until Matthew brings it forward. And again, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It is by the Holy Spirit that this is true. We know it's true because he's given it. But no one was expecting it. No one saw this coming. No one was looking for a virgin birth for the Messiah. Joseph wakes from sleep. He did as the angel commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, called his name Jesus. So there's all the stuff we've been talking about already. Let's end by highlighting the fact that he is God with us and he will save his people from their sins. This is why he came, to be God with us, tabernacling with us, literally is the John 1, 14 word. He's here. He's present. God among us, God with us, God in the flesh. This is a thing of comfort, that our God knows us, can empathize with us, as the preacher to the Hebrews will pick up on. But ultimately, Taking on flesh allows God to die. That he can pay the price, he can shed the blood to take our sins away. Is it too far to say that's why we're Christian? Would we be Christian if Jesus hadn't forgiven us? Would there be a reason to be? He's our Savior. And he has come. And as we wind up this Advent season looking for the return of our Savior, for Jesus Christ to come back into this creation, we do so every day waiting and hoping and trusting 
knowing that he is faithful, knowing that he is our Savior who has rescued us, and he will keep his promise. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.